Balance of Nature's fruit and veggie capsules contain 100% fine-ripened fruits and vegetables, tested pure with no pesticides, fillers, or additives of any kind, and are the most effective whole food supplements on the market today. You might ask, how can over 10 servings of 31 different fruits and vegetables fit into six vegetarian capsules? Fruits and vegetables are on an average 85% water. Balance of Nature uses cold vacuum technology to remove the water, leaving only the whole food. We don't use any heat, air, or light drying methods that damage nutrients. Our cold vacuum technology maintains 99% of the fresh fruits and vegetables' original nutritional value. Along with diet and exercise, Mother Nature provides fruits and vegetables to help us maintain good health. To order, go to balanceofnature.com or call 1-800-246-8751. That's 1-800-246-8751. Use the special promo code PODCAST. I was frequently at my grandmother's house when my parents would leave for the weekend, usually from Friday night to Sunday evening. They went camping and fishing, which they liked to do a lot. Grandma was a seamstress, and in one of those times, she decided to make me a purple chiffon evening dress and put me in it. In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother and cultural commentator born and raised on the West Coast. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the 180 cast. Now what's really exploding, many, many people now are detransitioning after living the life for 3 to 15 years. Hello and welcome back to the 180 cast, where we explore the brains of people who have done what seems to be impossible in this political and cultural climate, and that is change their minds. I'm your host, Georgie Borman. Today we have another pretty important topic, and that is transgenderism. This subject seems to be taking up more and more bandwidth in our political discourse and cultural discourse year over year. And of course, it's a subject that's hotly debated, and there's lots of insults and smears that are thrown back and forth between the two camps. There are people who say, you know, tolerance means never questioning anything that comes um, out of the, the transgender ideology or the transgender community. And then you have some other people who are saying, whoa, 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 let's slow down, take a breath, figure out what's going on here, and um, and of course, there are the people who who are very uh, concerned with the rights of of non-trans people who may be affected by transgender policy accommodations. So there's all sorts of complex things going on here um, that we can debate. But what's not debatable, I don't think, is that the number of people who identify as transgender is growing at a very rapid pace. It, it's something that we can't ignore. Um, the rate of people in America who identify as transgender has doubled in the last five years. It went from like 0.3 to 0.6%. And then now we also have this emerging phenomenon of rapid onset gender dysphoria. So this is not just like a marginal fringe issue, though maybe it once was considered that. It's now something that everybody has an opinion on and everybody, 
needs to be thinking about how we deal with this subject going forward and and what are the best ways that we can um, love people who are transgender or who are struggling with their identity. Um, so here with me today is Walt Hare, um, and he has an amazing, a very incredible, very difficult personal journey that he has been on with the subject. He is the author of multiple books on the subject of transgenderism and runs the site sexchangeregret.com. Um, thank you so much for coming on the program today, Walt. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for allowing me to come on and talk to you today. Yeah, it's it's such a sensitive topic, and I thought I've read some of your pieces and you seem like a pretty level-headed and compassionate person. And, of course, you've been on every side of the issue that you can be on from your personal you know, experience through life. So I thought that your story is a great place to start in opening up this conversation and for us being able to understand it a little bit better. Um, so you lived as a woman for many years and then you transitioned back to living as a male as your biological sex um i guess i would just want to start from the beginning like what what what's your backstory what made you feel like like you needed to do the transition in the first place well <clears throat> i'm like you know many of the people started out cross-dressing at a young age i was four years old and um and then you just believe that over a period of time after you've been affirmed and encouraged and you kind of enjoy the whole idea of uh, taking on a different gender identity, uh, you begin to um, develop a desire to do it. And then when I realized that it was possible, uh, after many, many years, I went to um, gender specialist who said that <clears throat> I needed um, to um, undergo hormone therapy and gender reassignment surgery. And um, he said, you suffer from, uh, at the time it was called gender identity disorder, but it has changed and is now uh, gender dysphoria. Same thing, it's just different name. And uh, so I believed what he said and underwent um, the hormone therapy for two years. And then after two years, um, I underwent the gender reassignment surgery. It was 1983. April 1983, as a matter of fact. So we're coming up on an anniversary. And so, um, and then after uh, I began to study psychology at UC Santa Cruz and began to look at um, some of the books. Um, and the first thing I came across was a study on separation anxiety, which talked about a boy who was uh, very fond of his mother, very close to his mother. His mother passed away. And he took on his mother's, uh, he became transgender, but what he was really doing was taking on his mother's identity as a way to um, feel as though he hadn't actually lost his mother. So he actually, in effect, uh, became his mother uh, in a way to keep, keep her alive. So um, I began to study many more factors that lead people to this, including my own issues of being sexually abused and, and emotionally abused and physically abused and realized 
um, after studying um, many of these early stories um, about people who identify as transgender, um, I was finding that there they had some something that happened early in their life that caused them to not want to be who they are and or didn't want to identify as if it's a male didn't want to identify as their father did as a man because um, they found that you know the father was just too abusive or repugnant or just not a good person and they felt it was better to identify with um, and change genders as a transgender identify with a female who they felt was much more compassionate loving and understanding than the male that they're associated with so when we begin to sort of unwrap and unravel and unpack all these different things um, what I've learned now after 30 35 years um, is that uh, there's something um, in that happens that causes us to not want to be who we who we are and it just becomes more convenient to identify as a transgender and then the people that i work with now what's really exploding are the detransitions many many people now are detransitioning after living the life for three to 15 years um, and those are primarily the people i work with today and that's why i wrote my recent book trans life survivors but there are literally hundreds and hundreds of people who are detransitioning today. Wow. So go, going back, you said that you started cross-dressing when you were four. Is is that something that um, just came spontaneously to you? Or were there other people in your life that, that influenced that? Or like, how did that, how do you think... I mean, you were four, but how do you think that that idea sort of came into your head? Well, it started kind of what seemed pretty benign. And um, I was uh, frequently at my grandmother's house when my parents would leave for the weekend, usually from Friday night to Sunday evening. They went camping and fishing, which they liked to do a lot. And I was at grandma's house. Grandma was a seamstress. And... Um, I, I always leaned on her sewing machine and watched her do her work because that's the way she made money. And in one of those times, she decided to make me a purple chiffon evening dress and and put me in it. I'm again, I'm four years old, and and it was exciting to me uh, how much attention that she paid to me and how cute she thought I looked, and and those affirmations. Um, led me to really have the desire to change genders. It was fun. It was much more fun than being a boy. I was getting affirmed. I was being loved on. And, and that planted the seed um, that, you know, didn't go away. I, I mean, I ended up having reassignment surgery um, when I was 42 years old and lived eight years as a female. So what I, what I realized is how powerful affirming someone in a cross-gender identity is um, because everybody likes to be affirmed. It's pretty intoxicating. Yeah. Uh, but I also realize in looking back and now working with literally hundreds of people that affirming them like I was affirmed as a young person, in my view, my personal opinion, is that it's child abuse. Um, 
People don't need to be affirmed in a cross-gender identity because it's fun, it's zany, or because grandma or someone else thinks it's fun. Um, it's actually um, destroying the very core person they are. I, I mean, I began to not like being a boy because I was being affirmed so much as a girl. So, uh, I, you know, thankfully... Um, I've been able to regain my footing um, after going through psychotherapy and realizing that um, that purple dress caused me a great deal of uh, physical and and other harm. I I was sexually abused because of the purple dress. Um, Someone found out in my family about it and thought I became fair game to be sexually abused because had it not been for the purple dress, I wouldn't have been sexually abused. If it hadn't been for the purple dress, I wouldn't have been physically abused the way I was. So um, a great deal of harm comes from these cross-gender identities and the mocking and, and so forth. Um, and, and quite honestly, they're totally unnecessary. Um, and so that's what I'm finding out in 100% of the people I've worked with. They all regret having done it. They realized that they didn't actually change from one gender to the other, except uh, as you would expect for like a Halloween costume, you don't actually change who you are. And that's not to be disparaging on them. It's just the fact that uh, biologically um, you can't change. You can cosmetically appear as though you're different, but you actually are not. And many of the people who come to that realization are the ones who contact me and say, I have regret. Can you help me detransition? So uh, it's it's really um, kind of uh, sorrowful to me that so many people, um, I would be silent on this issue if there weren't so many people hurting because they were affirmed, given hormones, and underwent gender reassignment surgery. There's just too many of them. I've written many articles about them. I mean, one individual had 167 surgical procedures, um, obviously taken taken advantage of by the transgender community. It's really mutilated him, um, and he's still not satisfied with uh, what it is. Obviously, that's a psychological disorder, and he never should have had one surgery, let alone 167. Um, other other people I've worked with, the vast majority of them have been sexually abused or were sexually abused as a child, oftentimes by someone outside the home, maybe a diving coach when they were off at summer camp or a neighbor. Um, There's just so many very painful, unfortunate stories. I have yet to find anyone that I've worked with uh, over the last 10 years uh, that was born transgender. Um, They were, uh, it's a childhood developmental disorder that evolves out of uh, wanting to escape childhood pain, and and that pain um, can be escaped by identifying as a different gender. But after three, five, ten, fifteen years, um, the pain returns from the past, and they still need psychotherapy, and uh, they want to detransition and reclaim their life. And so that's why um, my website uh, has had as many as 350,000 views in a year, and I constantly get at least 25,000 views in a month. <clears throat> so there's a lot of people hurting out there, but most of them are the ones who underwent hormone therapy and surgery and 
um, went 10 or 15 years later and regret having done it. Yeah. So you you mentioned all these things that, that happen, you know, when you were really little and the people you work with that happen when they are very, very young. Um, but it seems like at least for your generation or, or even the generation after of people who identify as transgender, they don't, it's like they don't decide that until further on down the line when they've been in a, an adult for quite a, quite a while, like um, Bruce Jenner, for instance. What, what does that process look like? Like, why, why does it take so long to make that decision? Or I guess I'm looking into more insight on what exactly the thought process is that leads people to later on in life decide that this is the, that this is the route that they want to go. Well, Jenner's a, um, you, you bring up a great example, actually, because the late onset, I mean, you, you talked about rapid onset, but there's also late onset. Yeah. And the late onset uh, group are generally men who have been married, had children, and then uh, come out as transgender. But they're actually not transgender. And this is uh, really instructive for people to learn about. They can Google it and read about it. But um, Jenner is more likely what we call autogynephilia. And and um, this is uh, probably represents uh, a large portion of the adult population of late onset uh, gender change identity uh, individuals. And, and autogynephilia is a sexual fetish where he actually um, gets aroused by uh, being uh, or seeing himself dressed as a female and looking in the mirror. That's uh, very, very common. It's been written about. Autogynephilia has been talked about for many years. And then there's also a group of people who identify as transgender that actually aren't transgender. They they suffer from a transvestic fetish where they actually are sexually aroused by uh, maybe women's shoes or women's clothing or some part of the women's clothing. And so, you know, uh, with these two different sexual fetishes, we have people identifying as transgender who actually aren't. They're suffering from uh, sexual fetish disorders, but it's kind of messy to come out saying I have a sexual fetish, so they prefer to just say I'm transgender. It gives them cover for their uh, sexual fetish disorder. So I think it's important for people not to conflate sexual fetishes with people who identify as transgender. Yeah, that's the sort of thing that I would not have found out if I had not asked you that question. <laughs> so, okay, thank you for explaining that to me. Um, what about the other group? Um, so I often, uh, on this podcast, ask people slightly hi- hypothetical questions. Like, for for instance, if it hadn't been for the purple dress, um, would you still think that you would have gone down this path? Like, this is a struggle that you were bound to have? Or, or would it have been totally averted, right? Because the, the influence that we receive from the people around us, from the people close to us, and even nowadays especially, just through the internet and television, seems to have a very big impact influence on how we conceive of our own identities. So what do you think about that? Well, without the purple dress, without the affirmation, um, 
I never would have gone down that path. I never would have been physically abused. I never would have been sexually abused. So my life would have been um, much more healthy. And um, and that is quite unfortunate. But these things do happen. But what I what I want people to know is that when they do happen, they should talk about it and get help for it and not take hormone therapy and undergo a gender change where, you know, 10 or 15 years later, they're going to regret it. And that's, again, why I wrote the book Trans Life Survivors. It has their stories and their gut-wrenching stories. I could have put 300 stories in there, but I just selected 30. So, um, you know, this is a this is a reality that we're sort of unwilling to look at, that we're actually manufacturing transgender kids that grow up to be adult transgenders and many of them suffer from um, as a result of that suffer from uh, things like body dysmorphia dissociative disorders schizophrenia bipolar disorder uh, uh, all of them in some way or another suffer from some form of depression and anxiety so all those classes of issues actually require good healthy psychotherapy to deal with the issues. Unfortunately, most of the people don't seek out a psychotherapist until they have regret and have already had surgery and done done the hormones. And and that's kind of the sad state of it. But um, but we are helping a lot of people today by even this podcast and people who are suffering after they undergo gender reassignment surgery. Um, and, and want to detransition back and don't feel like it's safe to do so because they're scorned, they're ridiculed, um, and they're told uh, very bad things. They're, they're just not true. So I think we need to have uh, a lot more compassion, caring, and love for the people who've gone through this, uh, who were wrongfully sent down this path, and um, where many of them, um, their marriages were destroyed or their families or just their life. And unfortunately, a large number of them um, are, are dead. They committed suicide because they thought the hormones and surgery would answer all of their emotional and psychological questions, but they did not. And so the only way that they could see to get out of this mess was just to end their life. And that's that's. Horribly yeah, sad. I think I heard you in one of your previous interviews say that the rate after transition is something like suicide rate is something like 41 percent or something just out, outrageously high. Nobody actually has the exact number, but the 40 the percent rate um, is a rate of suicide that includes before and after. The truth is yeah. that people still commit suicide after they undergo reassignment surgery. They're actually much more desperate after having done it. And that's in an article published by the UK Guardian in 2004 that explains that people are traumatized to the point of committing suicide after undergoing gender reassignment surgery. That's not a statement that I made. It was a statement that was made by uh, the Birmingham um, University that researched this and found it was alarming that they, they actually made the statement after their research saying that sex change surgeries are ineffective in helping or giving people a better life. Wow. So you mentioned that on your journey back to transitioning back to living as your, your biological sex, you, uh, were re you were looking into um, 
comorbidity, like comorbid disorders and, and childhood trauma and things like that, and and that you were getting help for those things. Was there like a particular moment that you can remember back where you were like, I need to, I've, I've made, I've made a mistake. I, I sincerely regret this. Like, was there a pivotal moment or was it more of like a, a very slow sort of step-by-step thing? Yeah, it was a much slower process, but uh, I think what happens is that it's slow because when you realize that it was totally unnecessary you want to push those feelings away because there's been so much damage done. I mean, I had been married for 17 years. I had two children. I had a great career. And um, the the destruction as a result of listening to the um, therapist who is an expert in gender reassignment tell you you needed hormones and surgery and you believed him because he's an expert and you found that he was wrong, um, that is a pretty big uh, hill to climb to just come out and quickly say, man, I made a mistake. I mean, you've got a body that's been rearranged. Your life has been rearranged. Your birth certificate's changed. You've been divorced. Your kids uh, aren't talking to you. You no longer have a career. And um, so uh, the devastation of undergoing hormones and reassignment surgery is far and away greater than it would have been to suffer through the psychotherapy needed to address why uh, you were dealing with the gender dysphoria in the first place. And um, having having realized that many people now that go to my website actually write me and say, thank you for your website. I'm not going to undergo hormones and surgery. And they write me a couple of years later and say, I just went to psychotherapy. I got the help I need. And I'm so glad your website was up there. And, and those aren't just one-off letters. I've had several of those. And so we know today that, um, you know, no one yet can actually prove that um, someone has gender dysphoria, except that the person declares they either feel like wannabe or they understand they're transgender because of their feelings. But in terms of the medical uh, factors, no one can actually objectively prove that transgenders exist beyond somebody making the declaration verbally that uh, they are transgender. I see. Yeah. The transition itself is, is, is like you said, very, very difficult and, and very destructive, but detransitioning certainly was a very difficult process too. Like how, how long did it, did it take you to fully, I guess you could say, uh, fully detransition to the point that you could, or like, what, what did that look like? Like after you first started seeking out counseling? Yes. Yeah. That, that was a two year process. And there were times when I was actually, uh, using two psychotherapists and going to psychotherapy every day um, wow. because the the pain uh, from the losses and disruption of life, uh, keep in mind by this time I'm nearly 50 years old, and so I've been dealing with this now for 46 years, and uh, it, it's a gut-wrenching process, but I was fortunate to have... Um, one very outstanding psychotherapist who really committed himself to 
um, working with me no matter what time, night or day. He would go to his office if I called him, which I did at nine o'clock at night and say, man, I'm struggling. I can't street sleep. I've got anxiety. And he would meet me in the office and we'd sit there for two hours. The guy never charged me a dime. Uh, he just was committed to helping me walk through this process no matter what it takes. And so um, that's the kind of commitment uh, that I made. He could see that I was invested and he was then willing to invest in the same way. So uh, it was a two-year process and it was a difficult one. Wow. So I've heard you say before that um, based off of the people that you've worked with and the people that have written to you, that it seems to take between like eight and 12 years for, for people who have made the transition to figure out that they want to go back to living as their biological sex. Um, Besides just the fact that their, you know, like their, their life as they know, it would kind of be uprooted. What, what else is holding people back from making that? Because it, it seems like, for it to be such a consistent time period, it, it, it almost seems like an inevitability. So what holds people back for so long from figuring that out? Well, as I, as I kind of alluded to earlier, I think it's just admitting, you know, I don't know anybody that likes to admit they made a mistake. Yeah. Right. I mean, right. a small mistake, not even a little mistake. People don't like to admit making mistakes. So when you have something so traumatic so personally devastating, so life-changing, it takes a long time for you to gather up the courage uh, to admit you made a mistake. I've had some people that were better than others at doing this. I've had some as early as three weeks after surgery say this was a mistake. The, The longest one, two people contacted me 30 years after surgery and say that it took them nearly 15 years to admit that it was a mistake when they knew it 15 years earlier. But so, I, you know, everybody's constructed a little bit differently in how they're going to address the pain and, and anger and resentment that they have. And they write me and say they feel duped. They feel like they were tricked. They feel like they were misled. And um, so, you know, that's the heartache that they go through um, to come to the realization that they need psychotherapy, which the other side of the coin always tries to tell them you don't need psychotherapy. This is the way you're made and you just go for it. That's what I was told. That's what everybody, even when I went back to the gender therapist, when I was beginning to want to detransition the therapist and they all say the same thing, told me, oh, you're fine. You look great as a woman. You just need to give it more time. I'm going, I've given it eight years. How, what, how much time does this take? You know? And they said, well, you're fine. You just need to keep, keep going. You'll be okay. And I said, well, I'm not okay. Uh, And so that's the typical response you get from the gender therapist is just give it more time. And, and so they, they, they have a tendency to have a, a way of holding people off from admitting it was a mistake because I don't think the gender therapists like to hear that people that they've worked with um, re- regret having done it. Right, because that would mean they, they were failing. Exactly. Yeah, and we have such a high respect for 
for authority figures, particularly in the medical community, you know, somebody wearing a white coat and sitting across from you and, and talking in that very calm, level voice and saying, I think this is what's going on. I mean, because I've, I've, I've been to therapy. Um, yeah, that's, oh, wow, it's a lot well, to process. It's interesting because yeah. they call it white coat syndrome. It, we, we get locked into believing whatever the doctor tells us. Uh, and uh, the only time that that changes is when we've had a really bad experience with a doctor not being forthright, not being honest. Um, what's so interesting to me is that my doctor, who, who approved me for surgery, was actually the author of the original Internet, Harry Benjamin International Standards of Care. His name was Paul Walker. And th- that International Standards of Care is the one that's morphed into what we call WPATH today. And, and my therapist was the guy who actually wrote that document in its original form in 1978. But what's even more interesting is that he was friends with an endocrinologist named Dr. Charles L. Illenfeld, who worked at the Harry Benjamin Clinic in New York and had worked there for six years administering hormone therapy to people who've undergone gender reassignment surgery. He'd done that for six years, 500 people that he worked with. And he spoke to a group of therapists uh, in Tappan, New York in 1979 and said he's leaving the practice of endocrinology and giving hormone therapy because he is seeing too many of them commit suicide and too many of them are unhappy after undergoing the reassignment surgery. That was in 1979. And he said for the, for the few that feel like it's going to work for them, and this is a quote, he said, it's only going to be a temporary reprieve somewhere between 8 and 15 years in length. So even in 79, Dr. Illenfeld was well aware uh, that this was not a long-term solution. He became a psychiatric doctor because he said that's the only way that I feel like I can help this community. Keep in mind, he was a homosexual activist who wanted to help the community and felt the only way that he could apply effective help to them was help them with their psychiatry and not hormones and surgery. Very powerful when you think about that from 1970. As 40 years ago, we had this information, and I'm finding what he said in 79 has been true every year since then, including here we are in 2019 saying the same identical thing as Illenfeld said in 79. Yeah, I was just going to say that 8 to 15 years matches up almost exactly with with what your experience has been. That's There's a lot of consistency there that it's hard to that's hard to put a lid on. Well, especially when he was himself um a homosexual activist wanting to dive into this community as an endocrinologist and help people transition. And then he found out that it wasn't a good idea. So he wasn't somebody that the um, the community could say, well, you know, you're a wacko, right-wing, uh, Christian, whatever, you know. No, he's he was one of them, and he said it's not working. It's causing too many suicides and too much unhappiness. And it isn't 
going to last a lifetime. And he was exactly right 40 years ago. But we have a tendency uh, to, when we want to continue doing the same thing over and over again, I think they call that insanity. <laughs> yes, I have heard that. Um, so with what's happening with the teenagers now, I think in the UK I read that the rate of referrals to the gender clinics has quadrupled over the last five or six years. Um, and then there's there's also been, you know, just a, a teeny tiny bit of emerging research that seems to indicate that this is social contagion um, because it, it, you, you tend to find it in clusters. It stands to reason, right, that, that those young adults who are affected by rapid onset gender dysphoria, that they're going to be at a much higher, even higher risk for sex change regret, right? So how how do we equip ourselves to handle um, guiding young people who are experiencing a, a tremendous a crisis of some sort with regard to their identity? How do we um, guide them, put them on the path that's most healthy for them going forward? We keep doing podcasts to let them know that, um, you know, it's not a lifelong solution. And I, I think we we have some examples of uh, all of us who were young teenage people remember following trends of the day. And if we can just step back for a moment and apply what we're seeing with rapid onset with the days of goth, uh, you know, we had young people dressed up in black and going all their goth thing, uh, everybody was goth because it was quite popular. And so today we have this social trend where kids, especially 12 to 16 years old, are on the Internet and they join chat groups and they all just decide, well, I'm going to be a transgender. They're really not. They're actually not suffering from gender dysphoria at all. Uh, they're just joining a group because... One, they want to annoy their parents, or two, it's fun to join a group, or they're socially awkward people who couldn't find their way into a group without joining this particular movement. Um, if they don't engage in uh, hormone blockers and taking hormones and doing any kind of surgery, uh, there's a great likelihood that they will just grow out of it, just like all the goth people did. And it'll just vanish and another trend will take its place um, a few years from now. So right now we're just dealing with a social contagion trend uh, that kids are enjoying. And it does get them tremendous amount of focus and attention that they otherwise would not have gotten had they not identified as a transgender. So for them, it works. It's not um, a healthy way to get attention but it, it works. Um, I trust that many of these uh, young people will see the light and they will just stop uh, this transgender uh, idea uh, behavior and uh, join the real world <laughs> and say that it was all nonsense. Because that's kind of what I'm seeing. Um, I've had uh, occasion to meet with, um, talk with parents who sit down with their kids. One of them was 14 years old and had just had a heart-to-heart -heart talk with mom, and, and after about an hour of talking, the 14-year-old girl says, Mom, I really don't want to be 
a transgender. I just joined the group on the internet because it was fun. I'm just not going to do this anymore. And this is a, a 14 year old who had already cut her hair like a boy's was wearing boys underwear. And she said, you know, I don't really need to do this. And it was just from having a nice, soft heart to heart talk and cried with mom on the couch and said, you know, she she missed her dad. And there were other things that were happening in her life that were causing her some emotional pain. And she was using the transgender idea and identity as a way to sort of mask that deeper emotional pain that she was just kind of unwilling to face. What about for the young adults who who are very convinced that they need um, hormone blockers or hormone, um, you know, they need the cross-gender hormones, which, as I understand, some of these can actually leave you sterile and unable to to bear children. Um, What about for kids on that path? Like, are there certain... um, Right, because in America, I think especially, we value parental rights, and that seems to come into play here in a big way because there are parents who are saying, I, I don't want my kid to do this. My my child is going to to regret this um, and, and suffer lifelong consequences from it. And then on the other side, you have parents who are, are taking their, their five-year-old in and saying, it's official, you know, he's... Um, you know, our little boy is now a, a little girl and and putting them on this without really them being old enough to consent in any significant way. So how how do we un- untangle that mess? I know that's a really big question, but um, yeah. as a parent, that's something that I've been thinking about. Yeah. And, and there are parents who are uh, LGBT activists who really uh, buy into the idea that Uh, Kids can uh, adapt to a gender change and become very healthy and happy as a result of it. Um, There are other parents who um, think that doing this is very harmful and child abuse. And um, I, I must say from the evidence and the people that I work with, um, I would say that the parents who reject the idea that it's good and healthy are on the right side of the issue. Um, The truth is, um, I believe that um, we're going to know this truth probably about 10 or 15 years from now, uh, because that's the cycle that we've been talking about. And I think you'll see, um, and we've already started to see some of the young people reject the idea um, at 14, 15, 16 years old. And admit that the only thing they really needed was psychotherapy. But there, but there's two main reasons that we're seeing young people uh, become convinced that they're transgender at a young age. And, and, and one of the key elements is sexual molestations in, in some groups. Others are because of a very broken, difficult home life. Um, maybe one of the parents died. Maybe there's a, a separation. Maybe there's alcoholism. Maybe there's drug addiction. Maybe there's just tremendous chaos. Uh, maybe it's just a family of uh, people who are just absolutely bent on all LGBT stuff is good. And so they sign up for anything that's LGBT, more like it's a religion to them 
than it is um, anything else. And so they just buy into all the popular trends of the LGBT and go down that route. Um, so we're, we're in a, um, a terribly conflicted time. And if people were willing to look at the evidence um, of the broken lives, they would see that uh, what I see um, that many of the people are really harmed by this. That if it would be much more easy to dialogue about this if the destruction was done much sooner. But we tend to forget about it when it's ten or fifteen years later. It would be very helpful if the destruction came within the first three weeks. Then I think if they could see what I see at fifteen years, we would actually not be doing any hormones or reassignment surgeries because it's just too destructive. And isn't it interesting that a doctor 40 years ago recognized this and got out of the practice because he didn't want to be a part of it anymore. And we've had many, many such uh, stories and research articles written uh, over the years, but they're totally dismissed by the, uh, you know, flag-waving rainbow people. And that's their right to do. Um, they're the ones that'll pay the consequences for it. Um, the people who don't go that route um, will thankfully not suffer those consequences. And so uh, I'm trying to reach them before they um, drive off the cliff and then uh, come 10 or 15 years later and ask somebody to rescue them, um, which I do uh, and do it with great joy. But um it's just a sad thing to see their lives so badly broken. Yeah. The it's it's very hard to think so far ahead. The longer I live, the more I realize that that um the long-term perspective is very hard to to grab onto because it seems like what's right in front of us is the best thing at that time. It's it's very hard to like project ourselves into the future and think about what we're going to feel like way down the road. Um, yeah, I have one more question for you. Um, if you, let's say you had somebody who was newly transitioned, but who hasn't done any surgery yet, and maybe they're on the hormones and they're, they're sitting across the table from you and they're saying, well, I know what I want. I think that I am in the wrong body, or I think that I would just be much more comfortable and much happier if if I had the surgery and I was living a more, you know, authentic version of being a woman or being a man, I, I want the surgery. What would you say to that person? Well, first, I'd ask him a series of questions. Um, first, what do you remember was the time, the event or the situation that you first realized that you wanted to change genders? What what was it that came into mind, what was the circumstances that surrounded that? Can you articulate to me uh, what that was like, uh, what you felt, and and why you decided to do this? That would be question number one. Uh, number two, I would ask them if they've ever engaged in any homosexual uh, behavior, uh, see if it's a homosexual ideology or not, because... <clears throat> Uh, the vast number, about 95 to 97 percent of the people that I work with never, ever engaged in homosexuality. So they were never homosexual. Uh, it was strictly an issue of identity. 
and not of sexuality. They don't they never suffered same sex attraction uh, until they had reassignment surgery um, as men to become women. Then they had same sex attraction because they're attracted to women, but they they aren't and were never homosexual. So um, when and, and once you begin to explore these ideas and then find out if they're I would ask him if they're aroused sexually by cross-dressing, then we know we have a sexual fetish and not a transgender identity. So uh, what's important there is if a person is sexually aroused by cross-dressing and they start taking uh, hormones over a long period of time um, and undergo reassignment surgery, they will no longer be aroused by cross-dressing. And so uh, they need to know that going in, that their, their love for the uh, arousal will go away, and and that's a tragic thing for them. So, uh, so homosexuality, what happened that caused him to do that? Is this an arousal, uh, sexual fetish issue, um, and um, what is the expectation uh, in terms of your uh, life uh, in in the long term? And so, some of those questions are really good to ask because likely they've never thought of them. Yeah. Thank you so much for sitting down with me and explaining all of this. Like I said, it's I I don't think I could have found all of this inf- insight on my own. Um, and I think the listener at home is really going to appreciate your perspective on this. Uh, well, where can where can we find your work and keep up with? the ministry that you're doing what's the best way to to follow you yeah uh sex change regret or walt hire.com i've got six books uh out there that are um very helpful in getting resources um and each one of the books deals with the addresses the issue um, very differently paper genders gives the history and how transgenderism was started by three pedophile activists who believed that it was quite appropriate for adult men to have sex with young boys. And um, that's how this uh, whole transgender ideology got started, was out of this Kenzie, Benjamin, and Money, three three men who really launched it. It wasn't ever a medical necessity. It was done out of sexual uh, preferences. Oh, my God. Okay, so what is the best place to start for somebody who knows somebody who is who's contemplating uh, the transition? What, what's the best? I, I would get uh, Trans Life Survivors and Paper Genders, uh, two, two books that uh, provide a great deal of research and insight into this. Those two books will uh, certainly uh, jog your thinking about uh, what this is all about. Okay, thank you. Thank you, as always, so much for listening to today's episode. You can follow the podcast on social media at 180Cast. If you like this kind of format, if you like what we're trying to do here, please consider taking a few seconds to give the podcast a rating on iTunes. It helps us out a ton in terms of getting this podcast in front of a wider audience. Um, You can also send me your feedback and recommendations for 180 stories via direct message on Twitter at 180cast. If you want to follow me on Twitter, that's Georgie underscore Borman, B-O-O-R-M-A-N. I opine on a variety of things, and my opinions are pretty much totally uncensored. So follow at your own risk. 
Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless.